Hi, everybody. I'm Ralph Benmergi. Welcome to Not That Kind of Rabbi, a show where we talk about life through a spiritual lens. And I invite people, some who I know, some who I don't, to come onto the program and uh, have a good conversation about uh, the more existential, the more woo side of life. Uh, Thanksgiving has come and gone. Uh, posted something on my uh, Facebook page for Not That Kind of Rabbi. Uh, by the way, uh, we have a donate button on, on Not That Kind of Rabbi these days. So if you feel inclined, please do help to support us and uh, keep making sure that we get to put these podcasts out there. Uh, I'm really enjoying doing them, and I hope you enjoy listening to them as much as I enjoy doing them. So Thanksgiving, I've always had this thing about Thanksgiving that it's a Christian holiday. And when I tell my Christian friends that I think it's a Christian holiday, they're always a bit surprised and go, really? Didn't? No, I didn't. So that's, I think, speaks more to the idea of a dominant culture than anything, that if you live in a culture where almost everybody is the same as you in terms of something, either being Caucasian or being Christian, in the case of Canada, over 80% of Canadians are of that um, ilk. I always compare it to if you're in Israel during a Jewish holiday or even on a Friday afternoon before the Sabbath, you don't have to make a deal out of it because it just is. Every doorway has a mezuzah, which is what you, the scroll for the blessing of the place that you're entering uh, in public offices. That's just normal. Uh, if it happens to be what is our version of Thanksgiving, which would be called Sukkot, uh, the festival of the harvest, Um, then everybody sees these things called sukkahs all over the place. There were three-walled structure, uh, impermanent structure with a thatched roof so you can see through it to see the stars at night. You're supposed to actually eat in it. And for Orthodox Jews, you're supposed to sleep in it too. Uh, And it's your connection to the natural world at the end of a series of holidays that mark the beginning of a new year. And just before a holiday, which we just had, which is to start reading the holy book again from beginning to end. So Sukkot is perfectly normal there. Here, it's a hard choice for most Jewish people. That Do I make a deal out of this? Do I want everyone to see me this way? Um, do I do it? Did I grow up doing it? Am I in... Am I more assimilated than that? Am I less assimilated? You know, these are decisions that are very self-conscious because you're always in the minority. Less than 2% of Canadians are Jewish. There are more Muslim Canadians than Jewish Canadians now. So these are just things of being on the outside looking in. You know, at Christmas, you'll watch, I watch, Christmas to me is movies. And I used to go to Max Milk to get eggnog. That was my Christmas. That's how I lived. Uh, and I love those movies to this day. I watch Alistair Sim a Christmas Carol on Christmas Eve every year. Is it my holiday? No. Am I in a country where it is? Yes. So for Thanksgiving, it's kind of the same thing. I know how to make a turkey. I know how to have the meal and what's supposed to be there. Um, and I do it. I do it gladly. But it's always interesting to me that it isn't perceived the same way by Christian people as it is by me. So Um, I see it as mostly an American invention about religious zealots, pilgrims, uh, outcasts from the United Kingdom who came and colonized and subjugated and oppressed and moved on and colonized again. Uh, And they brought with them this notion of their plenty that they would, you know, have 
and that the Native Americans would share it with them. Here, more of a harvest festival than that, and we don't have the pilgrims in, you know, Massachusetts. We have a different way of doing it. But nonetheless, it is important for all of us to have rituals, all of us to have things that let us mark the time, mark the calendar, mark the progression of cycle of seasons. Those things really matter. And if we don't have them, if we just find ourselves in a space where every day is every other day. It's like when I found that Sunday shopping was coming into vogue when I was younger. And I thought, why would you take away your only day where everyone doesn't have to work? And now there's no such day. Sunday is Tuesday, Tuesday is Thursday, Thursday is Saturday. They're all the same. Everybody's busy. They're all out shopping. And I kind of lament that. And I wish we could mark our seasons better and our time better and our weeks better. Um, and whatever one says about religion itself, it is a compendium of thousands of years of distilled knowledge and cultivated wisdom that sometimes allows us to be able to make conscious what we can so easily let slip into unconsciousness in our lives. So happy Thanksgiving is the short answer to what I was just talking about. And um, I hope that this cycle of harvest to fallow to spring to summer is going to be a wonderful and beautiful experience for you uh, in whatever way you can manage. I have a guest today who I've, I've known for a fairly long time, I must say. And um, we both come from the same high school. <laughs> We both come from the same traditions in some ways and in others, my being Moroccan, not in some ways. Um, but he was kind enough uh, to allow me to be on his previous uh, sports program off the record. I always enjoyed it. I do remember the one time I challenged the idea, not to him, but to somebody who on the panel was with me, that why do we do a national anthem before a sporting event? Like, what what is that? Since when was this a military event? And they looked at me like a Martian and God love my guest. He, he just bailed me out and said, well, I take your point. It's a pretty good one. <laughs> and we moved on because he was always somebody who, like me, loved sports, but it didn't mean our brain had fallen out of our head somewhere along the line. We just loved sports as much as we loved a whole bunch of other stuff. So I want to introduce you to one of Canada's best known sports broadcasters, Michael Landsberg, and welcome him to Not That Kind of Rabbi. Hello, Mr. Landsberg. Hey, it's good to see. You. I feel like I should be talking. You have this this lovely sort of somewhat poetic, very controlled, um, highly rangeful voice, and I kind of feel like I need to match you. But then again, eh, I'm not going to do that. So great, to, great to be with you. Um, we all have our styles. I tell people in broadcasting who want to go in, I say just be the best you, whatever that is. And if yeah. I tried to be you, I would be terrible. And uh, I do disagree fundamentally with a few things. I hated when you said that you went to Max Milk to get eggnog. Becker's, buddy. Becker's was always <laughs> the place for eggnog. And uh, I remember the first time I had eggnog at a Christmas party at the CBC and um, there was uh, rum in it. And I didn't realize you could do that because at our house was just something you left in the fridge. And mm. I was with my wife and I took a sip and I went, what is in this? And my wife, who was a, was a convert, said... Uh, I, that's how you do it. It's got rum in it. I'm like, okay, all right, I'll smile. I'll pretend that I didn't wince just now. It's all good. Um, 
what do you think of some of the things I was just talking about in terms of marking holiday and time and, and all of that? Any of that makes sense to you? Yeah, it, it does. It, um, it prompted certain reactions from me uh, and it, it, it got me thinking, which I, I'm gathering is one of the, one of the compliments that you would want to get from a listener of your podcast would be, mm. it got me thinking. Uh, and it got me thinking of my relationship to Judaism, for instance. And I, I would be a, um, um, l- let me start from the beginning. I went to Hebrew school. You mentioned Forest Hill uh, Collegiate. Uh, I went to Forest Hill Collegiate. Before that, though, uh, when I was going to North Prep and then Forest Hill Junior High, I went to Hebrew school at Beth Senek. Uh, and you were mentioning about uh, about the the sukkah, right? Uh, you know, it's celebrating Sukkot in the sukkah. And the only thing I knew from going to Beth Sedek was that when we were in the sukkah, we got grape juice and we got challah. And it's it's funny because what you know, challah is bread, right? It wasn't unusual for me. It wasn't like this big treat. But I remember that we were all like, oh my god, I need another piece of challah. I need some more grape juice. And it kind of stood out. Uh, for me, as I look back at it, like, why was I that excited about it? We didn't have a sukkah in my house growing up. Uh, but my dad, when uh, when we had kids, my wife and I um, put up a sukkah on a yearly basis for his grandchildren, um, because I, I think he wanted to expose them to something that he didn't expose me much to. But my point of that is, you know, Ralph, it's very sad for me to say, but religion was to some extent ruined for me uh, because of Hebrew school, uh, because the experience of being forced to go. Uh, I, I, was a, uh, I was a kid who had uh, attention issues, uh, dyslexic, tortured at times by school, especially using uh, when I had to use my hands. Well, what else would you use to write? But I, 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 found, I found school really taxing, and I found it difficult to, quote unquote, try my hardest. The perception was that I didn't. And then to go to school two hours after, uh, to Hebrew school, two hours after, you know, I'd been in school all day. And then on Sundays, I just, I started to, I started to hate it. And I think to this day, even this many years later, I'm still affected by how much I, I just felt like, I was burdened by this, uh, except for one thing, uh, and this is probably what I remember the most and what religion brought best to me was the popcorn man in front of Beth Zedek back in the day. Oh my gosh, he used to have the butter that he would pour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It looked like a teapot. Yeah. So good. Yeah, yeah. That That's a memory. You know, it's an interesting thing because I, I always have a, a, a great problem with the the way a religion is taught to children there's a, a little piece in the torah that says don't bother trying to teach torah to uh, someone until they're about 20. they're really not going to be in the conversation that you really should be having so what you end up instead is reciting a book of miracles to children that are fairy tale in their expression and then by the time, so the, the, the old joke of, you know, Rabbi, there's mice in the, in the synagogue. Uh, well, don't worry about it. What do you mean don't worry about it? They're going to eat the Torah parchment. What are you doing? And it's just, you know, okay, you want to get rid of them? Put a little keep on them, give them a bar mitzvah, you'll never see them again. <laughs> uh, not, 
not uh, necessarily something that I can't relate to. Well, and uh, many people can't. They just think, what are you trying to sell me here, this bill of goods? There's no sense of poetry or metaphor. There's no existential conversation because you're not going to have much of one. I did a, I was asked here in Hamilton to do a little pre-bar mitzvah class thing with, with a bunch of 12-year-olds, including one of my kids. And I just said, what's God to you? When I say God, what does it mean to you? And the answers were fantastic. I mean, some of them were ah, nothing. Uh, one, one girl said, it's like walking into a mist that is all knowing. And I was like, wow. Yeah. That's fantastic. You're 12. And they don't have those conversations at Hebrew school. They're just told, you know, this guy did this. And then Moses hit this rock and this water came out, but he shouldn't have done that. So he didn't get, you know. so it's all just literal and flat and uninspired. And also for some parts of it, it's interesting that your father may have seen that if he wasn't going to put up a sukkah, you weren't going to do it either. And that that would just be, there's something about being Jewish about not wanting to drop the ball and never have it get picked up again, I guess. Mm -hmm. That's true. And my dad, uh, my, my dad, uh, my dad's still alive. He's 89 and he loves being a Jew loves religion he studied the torah he studied the talmud just uh, my dad was an orthodontist um but you probably knew that because every jew in the forest hill area knew Dr. <laughs> Ron Landsberg, of course um not a good businessman but was smart enough to set up uh an orthodontic practice one block from forest hill collegiate wise move ron wise move uh but he he, he loved uh he loves his religion he loves being a jew he loves uh he liked love the traditions. I mean, he would sit there on Yom Kippur from morning until night. Like he would, he wouldn't, he wouldn't come home. And, you know, whereas me, even as an adult, I remember thinking, I can't wait to get out of here. I can't wait to get out of here. So we're wired totally differently. Uh, and I, I think- Why can't you wait to get out of here? Because I just, I, you know, doesn't I, mean I anything to you? Back to my only memories of religion are just being bored, being bored to tears, being thinking, oh my gosh, I'm forced to be here. And I'm a guy who loves to learn, right? So so it's, it's not like I'm a sports head, for instance, where um, the only thing I care about is sports. Uh, as I told before we went on you know american politics is a huge thing for me world war ii would be my by far my number one hobby uh so it's it's not like i don't like to learn it's just this reaction where um it's almost subconscious where i go nah and you know, like i i i i want to get out of here and i i think Part of that could be because of my early experience. Part of that could be because back then I probably wasn't as amenable to um, different to learning different things because I was more narrow and because I had my hands full doing other things. I think it was just looked at as a burden for me. So my dad loves religion. Uh, my dad, like I remember going to what synagogue did you go to? Well, we had a Moroccan synagogue called Petah Tikva. And that was downtown, but because we didn't have a Sephardic, and being a Spanish Moroccan, uh, we didn't have a Hebrew school when I was a kid uh, here in, in, in Toronto. I ended up at Beth Shalom because it was down the street from my house on Marley Avenue. Mm -hmm. So I went to Beth Shalom, uh, an Ashkenazi synagogue, much like Beth Sedek, 
where you went. Uh, I went to Boy Scouts at Beth Sedek. I went to United Synagogue Youth at Beth Shalom. I went to Mildred Arnoff uh, Hebrew School two hours every day like you did after school. I went from West Prep, you went from North Prep. Um, and so I was brought up with all that. And it, it didn't it didn't ignite me at all. But in my home, we were a highly traditional people. Moroccans were not orthodox. We thought this whole idea of gradations of Judaism was hilarious, that you could be reform or reconstructionist or conservative or ultra-conservative or orthodox. Or, it was like, what? Like, you're either in or you're out. <laughs> this is the way we, we were very simple about mm -hmm. it. And it was what you did. So every holiday, it is what you did. We went and, and celebrated those holidays with our Moroccan community. So for us, we didn't have a big box synagogue. Bethsaidic was the biggest synagogue in Canada, I think, at the time. Biggest synagogue, I believe, outside of Russia. Wow. In the world. Wow. So it was a different thing. You had a sage on the stage. You had a, an operatic kind of cantor who would sing and a rabbi. I mean, the whole thing was a presentation. How could you not get bored? You know, you weren't being asked to do anything. Like, that's interesting when you're talking about the things that you're passionate about. To me, they all seem to be things that you can lodge in your intellect, in your brain. But I then wondered, as you were speaking, what is has it been that has fed your heart? Because you are a soulful person. So what is it that has fed your heart all these years? What What is that? You know, I... I, I don't know how to answer that. Um, I'm going to ask you for some options here, because when you say what's fed your heart, I, I'm trying to, I'm kind of grasping with, well, you know, what kinds of things would feed a person's heart if it wasn't his religion? So let's make this multiple choice and I'll see okay. if one of the offerings. All right. So um, sorrow. I, you know, okay, so I, I would say what has uh, has fed my heart has evolved over the years. I came from a very close family. My parents adored me, my parents and my brother. Uh, probably me more than my brother, but uh, he, he <laughs> might tell him. That. My brother actually was, uh, it's funny, my brother became a doctor, right? He's a kidney doctor, and he moved to Vancouver to practice and do transplantation. But, you know, and uh, my dad was an orthodontist, as I told you, and I was, uh, I was, uh, I would have been in many families, the black sheep. But my parents were so incredibly supportive and thought that I, I could virtually do anything. As a matter of fact, my mom, who passed away about a year and a half ago, one of the last conversations I remember having with her, I was giving a speech about mental health to my dad's fraternity, Alpha Omega. Uh, and it was a really great moment for me because I, my mom had slipped because of Alzheimer's a lot. Uh, and, and to be there with people that just loved and admired my dad, it was just a wonderful feeling. And maybe I'm telling you now what actually fed me, but my, I, I remember, and again, this is one of the last cogent things my mom said. I remember saying to someone, oh, well, you know, my, uh, my brother's a doctor and my dad's an orthodontist, as you know, because my dad taught these people in the room. I said, but, you know, it wasn't an option for me. I had a really good agreement with med schools. You don't want me. I don't want you. And my mom came from someplace where this had been buried. She goes, you could have been a doctor if you wanted to. And it's like, mom, no, you don't understand. I couldn't do it. Oh, yes, you could have. No, I, I couldn't do it. 
I didn't want to do it. So it wasn't like, oh, I wanted to be my brother. My brother and I were best friends growing up and he had what he liked and I had what I liked. But she still, uh, as uh, she was, you know, fogged, brought into the fog of Alzheimer's, she was still able to recall the idea in her head that I could do anything that she wants, she, uh, that I thought I wanted to do. So I grew up in this house where my parents were um, totally devoted to me and my brother, where my parents were totally supportive, which probably in a lot of ways saved me, not going the conventional route. Uh, I had the confidence to go and try something that I, I knew no one, in my community, in the Jewish community at Bathurst and Eglinton, um, or Marley and Eglinton. I'm going to extend the boundaries out for you. <laughs> um, did you know anyone who went into broadcasting before you? I, I can't say. No, there were some people like Lauren Michaels and people like that who were in the business. Uh, Schuster, you know, Steve Schuster's dad, Frank. and and So there were people in the business, but not in conventional broadcast right so but let me so, but, but but let me ask you though because I, I said sorrow and i felt a change and but is this has sorrow been a, a channel for your so it i'll do it this way in kabbalah there are four worlds that we live in at all times uh, the first one is the body right uh, the second one is the heart the third is the head, and the fourth is the, you know, incomprehensible, the the all-knowing and unknowing of everything. But th that heart, the Yitzira part of a person, a person, some people live there a lot more than they live in the Bria, the head part of their of their life. And other people are, you know, you go to a gym and there's somebody who their whole life is their body you know, the expression of their life is through their body. When you, when, did you seem to have connected for a moment with that sorrow piece in terms of how it cultivates your spiritual life. I think the, the driving force in my, in the second part of my life has been from about 1989, no, 1992. Um, my wife and I took our daughter to uh, the pediatrician and um, I said, you know, she's not seeing well. And he said, uh, what do you mean? And I said, well, turn off the lights and then turn on the lights. This is the conversation I had. And you'll see that her pupils are not dilating. Uh, and he did that. And he said, oh, you know, some people have small pupils. And I, I, I can remember thinking, I like this guy. I think he's a good doctor, but he has no idea what he's talking about now. So we ended up finding an ophthalmologist that would see her pretty quickly. And when we were walking into the room, I knew my life was going to change. I knew that I would never be the same, that when I walked out of the room, I would be a different person. And the good news is that my, my, my daughter drives a car. The bad news is that she lost a vision in, in one of her eyes and has continually had to fight to maintain her vision. She has a serious eye disease. And I was destroyed by that. I was destroyed by the, the obsession of the worry and the anxiety that something bad was going to happen tomorrow. 
And that became the driving force of my life. And that led me to a lot of things. But I, I think in a lot of ways, it also led me, um, certainly in terms of my relationship with her, um, she would be the person that I'm closest with on the planet. Uh, I think that it, it taught me the value of a good day and the value of health and the value of uh, certainly on a micro level being able to see. But I think that that has been the driving force in my life, that if the people around you are healthy and well and happy, then nothing else that happens in your life um, would be in the same category as that. And I don't know if that's an answer that fits your description, but when I think about my life and I think about the things that have driven me and made me the person that I am, that would be the biggest thing. That's beautiful. The spirit, the spiritual life, you know, it's Leonard Cohen, it, it, the cracks where the light gets in, right? The broken heart is the way to a compassionate life that you could have taken that first doctor's thing because you wanted to believe it and said, oh, okay, fine. Whoosh, that was close. I was thought there was something going on there. Was nothing. Mm -hmm. That's just me. Don't worry about it. But you, you had the courage to say, no, I know something's going on here. I'm not an ophthalmologist. I don't care if I am or I'm not. I know something. And it's so interesting that what was your life the moment before you went in that room? Was it one of, hey, I've got this. You know, it's all just good, good stuff. I mean, I'm getting good feedback here. I'm going to be fine. You know, I, I think my life was, um, was really just about the blessings that I had. You know, blessing of uh, a good marriage, uh, blessing of, uh, as, I, as I told you, wonderful parents, blessing of two healthy kids at the time, uh, blessing of a career doing what I wanted to do, a blessing of a career that allowed me to find my way to, to have a place. Like I remember, I went to U of T for three years, and I remember going into University of Toronto Radio um, the circumstances for that. In my third year, I knew I was failing out of school. Hence, when I would say to my mom, mom, I couldn't have got into medical school. <laughs> oh, you could have. Mom, I had a 41 average. They're not letting people with a 41 into medical school. Well, if you wanted to. So I, I remember going to park. My mom had a powder blue Mustang and it was raining. raining. And I went to park on, I think it was Harvard in front of, uh, in front of Hard House. And I remember thinking, I'm going to take a test. This was like November. And I thought, I'm not going to take this test. I, I know what's going to happen. I'm just going to be told again, you know, you're a loser. You don't, you know, you're failing. You're, you're not good enough. And I pulled away and I made a promise to myself that I would go the next day into U of T radio. And I would try to follow this path that I always wanted to do. But when I asked you about like role models, there were none. So I didn't know that you could do it. It was like the most foreign thing in the world for a Jewish guy from Bathurst to Negleton to say, I want to be a sportscaster. Yeah. It was, it was totally foreign to me, but because I had no other options, because I was failing in everything else I did. I walked in, I pushed the button, the red light went on, and I can remember actually the button and the red light at U of T radio. And Ralph, at that moment, I thought to myself, I have a place in this world. There's something for me. Because I, I, you know, all my friends, the reason why I went to U of T is my brother went there and all my friends went there and they all had plans, right? I want to be a dentist. I want to be an accountant. I want to be a doctor. I want to be this. I want to be that. And I had nothing. There was nothing that, that was for me 
And then I pushed the button, I started talking and I thought, wow, this is me. I actually have a place in this world. So until I walked into the ophthalmologist office on, on that day, um, I think that for the most part, I was all about, wow, life is amazing. You know, like, like bad shit happens to some people, but not, not to me, you know, look, you know, like this, this, the biggest hole in my life was what am I going to do with my life? Uh, and that got filled and I, you know, I was loving what I was doing and just loving everything about my life. And then all of a sudden I walked in and I knew when I walked into the office, Dr. Dave Smith at Lawrence and Avenue Road. And I remember what I was, I was like in this fog and we were sitting as one is apt to do in an ophthalmologist office for an extended period of time. And I know this because I have literally spent, um, I can't imagine how many hours in an ophthalmologist's office, but I remember sitting there thinking, okay, well, why am I panicked? And it was like, it was like something had told me, and I'm not a big believer, you know, that God was speaking to me. It was like everything that was subconscious was coming out in me. I was panicked. I thought my life is going to change. My life to some extent is going to be over as I know it. And I was right. And I think since that point, uh, it's certainly has been the worst thing that's happened to me in my life, but it's also given me a perspective on life, a perspective on my kids and a perspective, especially on my daughter, that I would never have had without it. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it could, you know, things happen to us and we <clears throat> can learn from them or we can victimize ourselves about them. Why me? Mm -hmm. How come my kid didn't do this? Why didn't I finish university? You know, I mean, as somebody who has a pretty powerful ADHD myself, school was always, like you, mostly a negative experience. <clears throat> you didn't get good feedback because you weren't the kid who was paying attention, getting things right and doing it all the time. Yeah. So my, you, you, yeah. you learn that. So authenticity becomes, in what I'm hearing from you, there was this other gift you had which is to become authentically yourself, that, that you didn't need to become somebody else. But in that journey of becoming yourself, there are the other pieces which you're quite public about, uh, generalized anxiety disorder and depression, which I think a lot of people just see as words and don't really see as, I mean, as someone myself who's not a, a, a clinically depressive in, in any way, uh, I've had bouts where I've been very sad and depressed and lacked appetite, you know, when I was younger and things like that. And I had anxiety attacks in my early 20s, a series of them uh, from 20 to 25 while I was doing stand-up and doing all these things. Um, but they really challenge your soul, these things. You know, the depression, uh, my wife's a psychotherapist and I said, um, can you try to explain what, what it is about depression that I don't understand? And she said, it's not the thoughts. It's the thoughts you have about having the thoughts. It's the judgment, the harshness, the, the, the ability to go, wow, what kind of a person are you that you could think like this? And, you know, sort of a self-loathing that comes into it. And I just wonder one is, is it hard to believe in, 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 in life and when you know that you're up against things like anxiety and depression? Is it hard to, to just care enough to get up and do it? 
Oh man, uh, there's a lot I could unpack in that. Um, you, if if you'd like to go take a break for a couple of hours, I can talk for the next <laughs> couple of hours on the question you just asked asked me, and 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 how I I think your your wife's description is uh, is is bang on, and I in fact I may use it as my own in the future, right? I'm not quoting. Hey. School is not my thing. So sorry, no bibliography here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, so I, I spend, uh, I mean, the whole talking about depression thing uh, came about kind of uh, the circumstances that went into it to on a certain day be interviewing a certain guest to have just come out of the worst year of my uh, life with depression. Um, from having this self-esteem that I was gifted by my parents because of the love that they had for me and therefore the confidence to come out and share without caring what anyone would think. Um, you know, you add all of these things up and on this one day, which was, I think, October 16th, 2009 on Off the Record, Stefan Richet is a guest on Off the Record. Um, you, you're, you're a, Montreal, a 44. Yeah, defense there you go. Yeah. So I read, I mean, this is just the life is, uh, you know, you could believe that someone has scripted our lives for us or someone has maneuvered us, manipulated us to be in a certain position. I kind of look at it like this confluence of crazy coincidences. Just before I got up to go to the green room to greet Stefan Riche, I'd never met him before. I read that he suffered from depression in the 1990s. And I thought, oh, well, that'd be an interesting question. I wonder if he's okay with it. So when I went into the green room, and I'd never spoken about depression on television before, not because I was ashamed or embarrassed. I just thought, who would care? You know, like I, I was so unaware of the stigma because I was never, I never felt it. I never felt the stigma. I never thought, oh, I can't share this. I, everybody in my life knew. But I never spoke about it in TV. So I went into the green room and I said, hey, Stefan, uh, can you come outside for a sec? I said, look, you don't know me. You don't owe me anything. But I read that you suffered from depression, very severe depression in the 1990s. Would it be okay if I asked you how you're doing? And he said, ah, it's very painful for me. I don't, I don't like to talk about it. And I said, okay, I'm glad I asked you in advance. But if you'll talk about it, I'll talk about it. And he said, you? And I said to him, uh, yeah, me. As a matter of fact, I'm just... Uh, coming off uh, this year and a half where I was, um, I was living, but I was not alive. There's nothing over that period of time that could have brought me joy. The only thing I knew in my life was wake up in the morning. And the only aspiration I had was to get back in bed. It was like, everything was just, Oh God, how much longer till I can get back in bed? So he said, yeah, let's talk about it. So we went on the air, talked for maybe 90 seconds. And that changed, absolutely changed the course of my life. The next day, I started getting emails, most of them from men, and all of them essentially saying, I mean, normally I would get an email from, from you know, every day to off the record, right? Hey, Landsberg, you suck. You know, bring back Ralph Ben Murgy. Oi, you can't believe how many times I heard that. You know, uh, I, I started seeing these messages, Ralph, that were... Thank you for uh, you and Stefan for sharing your battles with depression. The fact that you didn't seem ashamed, the fact that you're a man who has done things in his life that he wanted to do. I am telling you, like, so this is what they wrote to me. I'm telling you something for the first time. I've never told another soul, but for the last 
five years or 10 years. There were 22 of these emails. Um, one of them said, hey, you know, I'm telling you something I've never told another soul. My dad, and this is, again, him describing it. My dad lived his whole life with depression. He came home every day. He drank every day. We never saw him smile, but he was a man. And for God's sakes, he was not going to show any weakness whatsoever. And I have lived my life exactly the same way. And then hearing two guys talk about it like, hey, you know, no big deal. I mean, it is a big deal, but it's no big deal that I'm sharing it. And that changed the entire course of my life. Uh, it, it, it in no way evolved into something that I could have ever imagined. Uh, I, I would never have guessed, given how much I've given up to this illness, that I could actually be in front of a group of people and say, you know, the worst thing um, that I have felt internally, right? So my daughter's illness was probably the worst thing that, that I've experienced. But for me, by far, depression. I mean, I've lived a healthy life, so there's nothing that's even close. And I said, you know, who would have guessed that the worst thing in my life could at certain times be the best thing in my life? And who would think that I could use this poison that I've had inside me, this thing called clinical depression, this loss of whatever brain chemicals there are that comprise your ability to be happy? Who would have thought that I could use that poison as someone else's medicine? Like it's, it's bizarre how it's given me a whole different direction in my life, a whole different sense of purpose. I mean, as a sports broadcaster, I mean, it's not like you do anything good for mankind or bad, right? You just, you just, you're kind of one of those people that does a job that, um, that is part of the planet. And then all of a sudden I find out, wow, you know, I can, I can talk about this and I can engender the kind of reaction in people that's way out of proportion for the difficulty of me saying it. You know, like it, this is not only is doing that easy for me, but it's a joy for me. It's a joy because the whole process of being able to make a difference in somebody else's life is a gift. But even beyond that, I'm a talker, right? You know, that's what I do. That's all I really can do. So here I am on stage in, uh, in Blythe, Ontario. I just made that up to give you an idea of a small town in Ontario that I'd never heard of, giving a speech to 300 people in the community, um, bearing every bit of my soul when it comes to mental health. And I'm thinking, oh my God, how did I get here? And isn't it? And I literally, how did I get here? I mean, Blythe, Ontario, not easy to get to, by the way. But, you know, Ralph, have you ever heard of Blythe? Yes, the Blythe Summer Festival when I was yeah. an actor. Yeah. Have you ever heard of uh, Exeter? Yes. New Hamburg? Yes. You see, sorry, but you worked for the CBC for 20 years. You, you go a lot of places. Yeah. You know, uh, well, let, me, also, let me ask you something here. This is because... I find this so interesting because what you're do what you're doing with this is rabbi work. This is rabbi work. This is saying you are not alone. We are all in this together. We all have our hearts in our hand and we have to have an ability between each other to create something sacred and to care for that other person's heart. That's rabbi work. That's what you're doing. I mean, I get throwing it out the window because it was dry and useless and just amplified feeling worse about learning disabilities and, 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 and emotional states. But that quest for authenticity is what allowed you, to, I'll give you an example. 
when I was starting in stand-up, you realize there were two kinds of people doing it at that point. Some were an act. I'm an act. I do an act. I'm, I'm a character. Howie Mandel. Howie would get up on stage in a diaper and go, okay, 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 for 20 minutes and kill. But then somebody else would come on stage and bear their soul and kill. And so you liked one or the other more. I respected how he was a great pantomime, a great clown. And I don't say that in a, a no. small way. He was a great clown. His timing, his rhythm, fantastic. Uh, but then somebody else would get up there. Uh, a Steve Brinder would get up there and he would just deliver his heartfelt plea that we are all in this together. And when I think of you pressing that button at that radio station and thinking, I, I just pressed me, right? And, and then becoming yourself more and more. And though you never spoke about the depression to others besides your family, because frankly, it's nobody else's business. And if you want to tell them, you tell them. But to have that moment with Stéphane Richet where you just go, uh, yeah, sure, I'll say it. And then to realize that you've opened this other door of yourself. Uh, and then you have to maintain it right? You, but you don't want to end up, I'm sure, as the poster boy for depression, the poster boy for anxiety. You want to help people while you're in Blythe and Exeter and, you know, New Hamburg and, and these places. So I, I love that really, it's like a revive, tent revival circuit you've been doing. You know, it's, it's quite wonderful. Yeah, it's uh, sometimes life leads you to bad places. And sometimes the bad place in your life leads you to someplace really good. And I think that would be me. You know, I think that somehow I have found this route to bring myself this joy that, uh, that I didn't know was out there. Like I said, uh, you know, I, I, you know, have always been a kind hearted soul, but I'm not sure I ever knew what to do with my kind hearted souliness or soulfulness. Uh, and you know, I, uh, one of the best things that, that I did, like I say, before my mom died, um, she was able to come out and hear me speak and she was proud of me. And, that makes me happy. Yeah. When you remember when you're when you one of your kids is little and one of your pets dies or something and they, where did they go? And you you don't believe that there's an afterlife, but you you can't resist and you say that they've gone to you know pet heaven, doggy heaven or cat heaven or whatever. When your mother died, did it? Did you wonder some of these things of where do we go? Why are we here? What are we doing? I actually, uh, yes, I, I thought about that. Uh, my one of my challenges with that is, well, if if there is a traditional heaven, like, like, um, I don't even know in Judaism, you know, whether we actually believe in traditional heaven, I, 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 I don't think so. And I'm saying that because also, you're shaking your head. No, so, <laughs> Never, you know. heaven is, is, is an internal state. Okay, as is hell. Right? So the I, hell of depression is hell. So I thought to myself, well, this would really suck if there is a heaven and, you know, you go up to heaven and 
my mom, who was debilitated by Alzheimer's, you know, ha what happens in heaven if you're somebody who, you know, obviously was very sick? What happens to uh, a baby that's born? This is how my mind works. Well, because mm -hmm. I, I have this, this, I think I'm dominated by the logic of life. Well, what happens to a baby who's, you know, who dies two days after birth? Is that per does that baby live on in eternity in heaven as a two day old baby? That would suck too. <laughs> so this i mean this is I, unfortunately for me you know sometimes religion not sometimes i would say all the time needs a leap of faith which is a yeah. interesting word to use to describe religion but you know uh, if you think about it too much or at least if i think about it too much i come to uh, i come to questions that will never be answered and, you know, for my dad, for instance, my dad's attitude is, well, you know, it's kind of like not for us to ask why, because there are no answers. You believe because you believe, not because you have, you have thought about it, you have rationalized it because you have worked it all out. And now you go, yes, I believe in God. And that's, I think, tougher for me, for sure, than it is for my brother, you know, who uh, uh, I think was brought up the same way as me, but with different different uh, assets and skills. He actually went to, I laughed when you said that joke about, uh, about um, give him a bar mitzvah and you'll never see him again. My brother, actually, I remember this. He's four years older than me, five years ahead of me in school. I remember him going, uh, I'd like to continue my, uh, my Hebrew school after his bar mitzvah. And I thought, that's, that's whacked. Man, like, what is wrong with my brother? I was so ashamed. It was like, oh, my God, I'm so embarrassed to tell people my brother's still going to Hebrew school. God, you know, sh save me the shame, Lord. So <laughs> I'm going to Green Bob's to get a pickle the size of my forearm. I can't deal with this anymore. <laughs> hold on, hold on. Green Bob's? Yeah. Bathurst negligent. Are you sure? Wasn't it? Good bombs. Oh, good bombs. I, he was in my Hebrew school class. Really? He, he gave me a poster for Hanukkah. We had to give each other a gift once in a while. He gave me a poster of Allen Ginsberg saying, pot is fun. And, <laughs> and they brought it home. My mother was like, what the hell is this? No. Good bomb. <laughs> Beside Powers and then Nortown uh, Cinema. Anyway, I, we digress. Nortown Cinema. Oh, man. there's And, uh... and Nortown Bowling, which is around the corner from my house. Yeah. <laughs> and the Baby I remember King and Menorah Restaurant, all these places. It was it was a village. So, but we were talking about your brother believing, having an easier time with the idea of believing your father as well. But wouldn't you say, like, spirituality is about the relationship we have with ourselves, with with each other, and with the universe. So for me, for instance, I don't worry myself about whether there's architecture to heaven. Like, you know, does, do I get my own room? Uh, that's, that's, there's not going to be me. This is not how this works. In, in my little world, in my little life, I see it as energy. And so when my father died and I looked at the eyes of what was lying on that bed two hours after he died and I had arrived at the hospital in the middle of the night, I did not see my father. He was gone. My father was no longer in that body. Uh, Ramdas says uh, it's spacesuit with your name on it, M. Landsberg, and then that was that 
iteration of what you were going to be as energy in, in the universe. And the rest just returns to that, literally the flow of stardust that moves through the universe and dies and gets recreated, stars that die that recreate stars that keep, you know, we make children, we die, they live, they have children, they die, they live. You know, so to me, it's more of a flow of, of, of energy. And it's, I just wondered when your mother passed, do you still have a relationship with your mother? Because some people say, yes, I do. And others say, no, no, it's over. I mean, if you believe that the end of life is just a cliff, we fall off into the dark. How do you have a relationship with that? I would say I very much have a relationship with my mother. And that's not something I've ever said before. I've never said to, uh, to anybody, to my wife or to my kids or to my dad. Well, I think once I kind of mentioned it to my dad because I thought it would make him feel good because my, my parents had this legendary relationship. When, when I was a kid, Ralph, like not a word of a lie. I would stay awake in bed thinking to myself, what happens if one of my parents dies? They were, they were so joined at the hip. They were like in the Jewish community, it was known that Ronnie and Annalie Landsberg had the greatest relationship in history. And I knew that it would bring my dad joy that, you know, that I think about my mom. But I also, um, uh, you know, have sort of never shared. And it's taken me time to get to the place where I could because of her illness you lose someone gradually over time. And it, you know, for five years, she was going downhill. So I have to get to the point before those five years to, to remember what it was we had. And when someone dies, you're dominated by their death, not by their life. And as time goes on, I think that, that the, the domination turns back to their life when you get far enough away from their death. So, for me, I, I would say I very much still have a relationship with my mom. And I very much consciously attempt to maintain that relationship. Now, she's not giving me anything. I got to tell you, like, hello, mom, you know, <laughs> here I am, you know, I'm, 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 I'm ca calling out, you know, are you doing the same? <laughs> yeah, that's pretty common. I think it's, it's sort of um, the idea of a two way street. And yet, you know, my father passed away a long time ago when I was in my early 30s. Uh, and it's not that I hear from him, but I talk to him. You know, there's just that moment. There's certain angels I've had in my life. You know, my old best friend who died when he was 43, uh, who every day after school, we played ball hockey. You know, we went to West Prep. We went back to Whitmore where he lived. We played hockey, ball hockey every day. And at one point I lived in his house. Uh, his parents both had died within a year of each other. And uh, I said, hey, Mike, look, uh, I could buy the house to him and his sister Maria. And, and he said, OK. While I was living in his house, he was dying of cancer the next oh. year. And me and uh, guys who you know as well, who we just rallied around him. He lived in Pickering then. But I'm sitting there looking out at the driveway that we used to play ball hockey on and looking at my two older boys now uh, playing there. And I, I had this image in my head of, if you knew what life was gonna have for you, that I could, he, I, I was always in net with foam pads and he was always taking searing wrist shots. 
and I was always yelling out some goalie's name, you know, Cesare Maniago, you know, <laughs> I would do these silly things. But I thought, what if I knew, what if for a moment I knew the way you and I would lie in bed and think about dying, right? I did that all the time. Well, what would I do? Just walk up, hey, Mike, when you're 43, I'm going to live in this house and you're going to die. Like if we, if we knew, could we live our lives? And yet we don't. And the mystery is always there. And I just, I just really luxuriate in that, you know, I mean, it's not so much a religious life as a question, question filled life. Like, what if this, what if that, well, you know, what if I, if the, what if depression, if the dark horse of depression had actually gotten the better of me, right? Why didn't it get the better of me? Will it get the better of me? You know, these things must be, you know, as we get older, they're, they're the only real questions we, we struggle with. You know, why did the Holocaust happen? You know, was that us? You know, so I had a, I do spiritual counseling with people in this. I was with an older gentleman and he said uh, he'd lost his wife. Uh, she had taken her life and he was talking about, you know, I said, well, where is God in your life? And he said, God turned his back to me just like he did in the Holocaust. He just turned his back to it, to us. And I thought, wow, that's heavy, man. Like depression must have a serious spiritual side to it. The way I see it. I think the, um, I think one of the ways that you want to deal with it, um, and this is very common with addiction, right? You know, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous is all about spirituality. It's not about believing in a certain God. It's believing in a higher power um, and believing that um, you have no control over some things in your life. So for me, I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm trying to put myself back in the position on a, on a really bad day and think to myself, what what helped me at that point and your wife is so right you know when your 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 brain when you suffer from severe depression is so occupied with trying to take you down this voice that you hear which is you're no good you know you're 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 not um, you're wasting your life you're you're going to go out on stage and give a speech and you're going to make a fool of yourself and you know you're a terrible father actually I never heard that um, you're a terrible husband you're a terrible this like it's it's like there's only so much space in your brain um, and one of the tricks that depression plays on you because it because I kind of see it even though I know it's not an entity I see depression as almost like an entity where its goal is to take you down, is to do in anything it can to prevent you from getting up out of bed or to get you to take your own life. That for me, it was just this battle of survival, which was, you know, how, how do I find something, some way to treat this? And, uh, you know, fortunately for, for me, I have found um, options that allow me to live a, a largely normal life. When I say largely normal, people like me typically don't get cured from depression, but we find things that allow us to live and to experience joy, which is kind of the heart of what I experience. And what I talk about is 
the loss of the ability to experience joy. You know, people stay, uh, as you did, you said that you have been through times where you were depressed in your life. And, you know, one of the things, one of the questions that when I give a speech, I know is going to be asked is how do I know that I'm sick and not just having a crappy time in my life? And I say that's that's a question that is the easiest thing to answer when you've experienced depression. Because in my mind, and the example I give is when I think of my mom dying, it makes me sad, but it doesn't make me depressed. The two have nothing to do with one another in my brain. Right. So uh, I think that, you know, for me, it's all been a search, not a search for joy, but a search for the ability to feel joy. And when I do feel that joy, when I do have the ability to feel that joy, when I can take a sip of a cup of coffee in the morning, which is what I call the basic joy test, you would have things in your life that brought you basic joy, not not waiting for the big thing to happen, but just a little bit, right? If you can't experience that basic joy that's depression so for me it's been the search for having the ability to experience it and when i do find it it's like if you've been a two out of ten and all of a sudden you feel like a five you feel like an eight because of the contrast between being a two and a five so when i have a good day i'm i'm incredibly blessed and see myself as incredibly blessed to have had taken the goodness away, to have understood what it's like to be in that place that is joyless. And when I do feel that joy, it's magnified many times over because of the contrast and because of, of thinking, if you would have told me at different times in my life that I actually would be able to take a sip of a cup of coffee in the morning, and, and get a little bit of joy from it. If you would have told me that, I would have thought, oh my God, thank God I will get it back one day. Wow. Wow, it takes a lot of energy, a lot of, to just, I can't even imagine. Whenever I, I speak to friends who, who have depression in their life, I just think, I just cannot imagine what it is to have this shadow that just, sits close by you know in that way and and what it must take to console yourself to it you and i are basically the same age i think you're you're two years younger maybe um basically the same age yeah basically the same age no we're not basically (laughs) (laughs) no no your brother's much older i'm not as old as your brother you are Uh, between my brother and i that's right that's in every way uh but um, I always see this as, and I don't see this in a negative way, I see this as autumn, that we've had our spring, we've had our summer, this is the autumn of our lives. It's not the winter of our lives, it's the autumn of our lives. Okay. Um, winter is next though, right? It, it, but after a good look at autumn, is one, it's my favorite season. Me too. The only problem with autumn, and that would be probably not dissimilar to your metaphor, the only problem with autumn is that winter follows it. Yes, exactly. My, my sentiments is exactly. Every year I try to think, you know what, be positive about winter this year. And about a month into it, I'm just like, oh, for the love of God, why do we have to go through this? Can I just live somewhere else? Uh, but how do you see your autumn of life when you look forward? You've done a lot. You have a lot. That's all stuff. But you've how do you see the next part of life for you? Where do you, where do you go? What do you do? 
You know, I don't have a lot of stuff. It's it, the way that I evolved. I have never wanted anything of value ever. Could care less about a car, could care less about uh, outside of the fact that, you know, I don't want to take public transportation, but there's like, like I, I can literally go three months without, without buying anything. Uh, and that was particularly good back when, when I hosted a TV show and I got my clothes for free. I didn't even have to buy my clothes and I'm not cheap. I've never really understood the value of money. So I, I kind of, I, I, I can't think of a single thing that I would want to do with, um, with the rest of autumn and into winter, except hang out with my peeps. Family. Yeah. Peeps, family. Um, yeah, because I mean, I'm not saying it's all about material stuff. There's, there's career achievement. You know, when we were young, it was, can I do this? Hey, I think I can, Hey, I'm doing this. Mm -hmm. All right. I've done it. This is great. But do, and now this other layer of your life, this rabbi layer of your life has evolved beautifully. Are you open to iterations that you can't imagine? Or do you start to see how some things are going to be different soon and some things aren't? Uh, I am uh, forever positive that uh, my adventure will continue. And that there will be things that um, that excite me and stimulate me um, that I can't think of right now. Right. If you if you know you, you talk about you know the future and how do I see it? The idea, for instance, of being retired and just kind of hanging out has no appeal to me whatsoever. None. No, I'm not tired. I'm not, I'm, I, I'm, I'm driven by waking up in the morning and thinking, okay, what can I do to create something that doesn't exist when I woke up? And I think that's why, uh, you know, I've liked, that's why I like TV because especially with off the record, it's like, okay, you know, like this show does not exist at nine o'clock in the morning. And by five o'clock this afternoon, there will be this thing that didn't exist and we get to create it. And when I apply that to other areas of my life professionally, uh, that's what drives me. And that's what accepts me. I mean, my daughter and I started a charity called Sick Not Weak, uh, I guess five years ago now. And um, people give us money, not a ton of money. I've never asked anyone for money in my life, but we get, um, we get money when we knock on the right door. And then I get to say, what am I going to do with that money? How do I create something of value? Because we're not building a hospital, right? We're not, we're not, there's nothing, there's no bricks and mortar to what we do with the money. It's like, okay, you know, for the first 60 days of the pandemic, uh, we did a show called Isolation Nation, where it was a talk show, because what do I know? I know talk shows, right? So we did this thing that was really based on the idea that there are people that are feeling incredibly isolated because of this pandemic and are experiencing things they've never experienced before. So what do I hope in the future? What do I see for me in the future? I see more of that, more of waking up in the morning and saying, okay, what am I going to do with today? And how do I do something? How do I give birth to something that didn't exist until I gave birth to it? Right. Beautiful. 
It's interesting when you're talking about isolation nation, I was thinking of Jamie Campbell as well. And he, he's done some wonderful things during this pandemic, you know, calling people all over Canada, just, just checking in, see how you're doing. Uh, he's got a good heart. He's, he's another guy with a good heart. It's a good thing to watch. I'm going to thank you right now. I really thank you for your time. It's been a long time since we've actually had a good time to chat together. Never chatted like this before. Good. It's a good thing to do, I think. Uh, I bless you. I bless your your daughter and uh, for having a father like you and your and your wife, uh, your mother's memory, and your dad, who sounds like a pistol, and uh, the whole love that you've been able to get in your family and given your family and the way you've you know really helped a lot of other people with a, a journey that's often filled with shame when it shouldn't be and doesn't need to be. So you know. From my little world, God love you. I'm happy for, for you that you do what you do. And I'm happy for us that you do it as well. So you take care of yourself, okay? You too, Ralph. Beautifully expressed too. Thank you for those words. My pleasure. Michael Landsberg, he's on TSN. He's been on TSN for a heck of a long time. <laughs> it's a good thing. It's good to have work. As a friend of mine said, when you have work, there's always a tomorrow. So it's not a bad feeling. If you want to get in touch with me, Not That Kind of Rabbi has a Facebook page. Uh, please go there. I post occasionally, obviously. And um, as well, we have a donate button if you want to help us out to make sure we get to create these programs more. It's a lovely thing. I've had a bunch of people do that recently. And it's, it just really puts a little bit of a spring in the step to get and go out and find people like Michael to talk to. Uh, and as well, I do spiritual counseling. I'm an ordained spiritual director, as well as having been a broadcaster all these years, but it's something I do. And if you're interested in spiritual counseling, I have clients and I'd be uh, happy to talk to you about it. Uh, you can either uh, direct message me on Twitter at, at Ralph Ben Murgy, go to my Facebook page and give me an email to, to, to write to you, or go to my website, kavanah.ca. Kavanah is a Hebrew word for intention. What intention do we bring when we wake up every day? And it's K-A-V-A-N-A-H.ca. And uh, I hope you are all well and uh, safe in this pandemic and take care of each other. And we'll uh, see you with more of Not That Kind of Rabbi in the near future. Bye.
podcast has been produced by TMDS and accelerated by Rome Phone. Rome Phone brings you the most reliable virtual phone service to run your business and protect your home number from unwanted calls. Visit romephone.ca to get started.